Good evening, I'm Rick Dancer. Welcome to Get Real with Rick Dancer. And tonight we're doing a, one of our segments, Dr. Bratlin over at uh, Chris Dennell said one day when we're having coffee, he said, you know, you ought to do a show on all the people that used to be on the news or on the paper or people that we used to read and kind of find out where people are and what they're doing today. Uh, so uh, last month we had John Fisher, the weatherman who used to work with me on KEZI. Uh, next month we're gonna have Shelly Kurtz uh, who used to work at KVAL-TV. And tonight we're going to talk to Bob Welch, uh, former columnist, reporter, um, editor, and all that over at uh, the Register Guard. But first, I want to give our client a little bit of love, and then we'll be right back here in just like 55 seconds with Bob Welch. Ow. Oh, ow. What? My tooth. Oh, God. Who is that dentist that's crazy enough to give out his cell phone to his patients? He got my cell number and he's like, wow, you're giving your cell number? I'm like, yeah, every single patient of mine has my cell number. Oh yeah, it's that Dr. Bratlin, Michael Bratlin. Uh, because I never want a patient to have any issues, whether they have a temporary crown on or... Chris Dental, I see him on Rick Dancer's show all the time. I'm, I'm gonna call him. They have emergency, I want my patients to be able to get hold of me. And he really does do that. <laughs> and you don't have to be Rick to answer. You can be anybody. And Michael will give you his cell phone number in case you need it. And he really does answer. So anyways, his idea to do this, you know, what's happened to them? Where are they now? And uh, so I got a hold of Bob Welch. And of, of course, he has a new book out. And we're talking about that. But also, I want to talk to him a little bit about what else he's doing. So, Bob, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, no. You know, and I feel like, you know, if we just need to get Sally, your wife, to come on and then your other son and then we'll have everybody. Because we, we, you must be so proud of Brian. But going back to John Fisher, in terms of beards, you know, I think Fisher would be the gold medalist. I think you would be the silver medalist. And I like I'm barely a bronze medal with what I got. I mean, Fisher, <laughs> you can hide small children in that beard. Oh my, you know, the first time I saw John at an event at KZI, it had been about four years since I'd been there. And I saw, I looked over and I saw this guy that looked like he came down off snowy Plover Mountain or something. <laughs> and and I go, I looked over and I go, who is that guy? I said to Tracy Berry. And she goes, Rick, that's John Fisher. And I went, no. He's been working with him for decades. I know, I go, you look like a hermit. <laughs> But um, you must be really proud of your kid. We had him on last month, too, yeah. with his, uh, his film. And I can't wait to see it. I mean, he is such what a talented kid. I love seeing how your grandfather was a writer. You're a writer. And he said, which I doubt that he's really true, is he said, I'm not a good writer, so I do it through visual. That's still writing. Um, he's got the talent. Yeah, it was fun to go down to Santa Barbara and see the premiere and uh – uh, I am proud of him. It's uh, he's worked so hard on that. And I don't know, more than a dozen trips to Alaska and taking a pretty huge risk. And then the one year you decide to follow this high school basketball team on this little island, Alaska, they win the first state championship in 30 plus years. And so everything fell together for them. And, and it's cool that, you know, after the whole COVID thing, they, they, it was hard for them to get much attention, but I think they're off and running with the, you know, yeah. when they won the audience award down in Santa Barbara at the International Film Festival. And so uh, I think good good things are going to come. Yeah, I'm excited for him. So, Bob, tell me, like, what are you doing now? I think people are interested wow. in 
just, I know I've got your book here. This is your newest book. Yeah. Saving my I, I am doing two things. I, I am, uh, uh, writing my own books and I'm writing I'm helping other people write their books. Um, I have three clients right now, one woman in LA writing about uh, trying to navigate the youth sports culture. I have a, a, a guy in uh, San Francisco, 30 year old former paramedic uh, from India who's, who stood on the Golden Gate Bridge and was gonna commit suicide and decided not to. And I'm telling his life story and uh, I've got Steve Bentz, a former half miler at Oregon. I'm helping him write his story. So I've just got my hands in lots of people's uh, stories. I really find I enjoy that. Um, and uh, as saving my enemy suggests, I'm doing a little on my own as well. This is a this was really been a uh, one of the most enriching experiences I've ever had to do the the story about a German soldier and an American soldier becoming friends late in their lives. So, so to go back to what you were talking about, cause I want to talk about the book, but I also, when you're helping them write their story, so is this your co-authoring with them or teaching them how to do this or helping them extrapolate their, the point? Yeah, I'm, a lot of times it, it, it differs with every client, like with Jimmy Barco, um, Jimmy Barco, you know, former U of O associate athletic director um, was sexually abused by a priest as a kid. He wanted to tell his story, but he didn't know how. So Ron Bellamy, the former sports editor at the guard, uh, kind of broke the deal, sat down with the both of us. And I heard his story. I had no interest in telling it. But when I an hour later, after hearing what his he'd gone through uh, and the courage it takes after 40 years to go public with that story, I said, I would be I'd be honored to tell your story. And I mean, I literally spent a year and a half with that guy. I sat down and interviewed him um, like I would at the register guard for a column, except there was a 70,000 word column and it took a year and a half to come out. And, and unfortunately four days after the book released the, the Jimmy died, but, but it, that's what I do. I, um, I, I do as much as they want me to do. Sometimes they've already roughed it out a story and I come along and just help smooth it out. Um, other times, like with Jimmy, I just start from scratch and I basically pretend, you know, it's a first person story. I'm Jimmy Barco. I'm telling his story. So what, so, and then he dies four days after the book is out. Yeah. The, the book came out on March 12th. We went to, we flew to Oakland. Uh, he, he had a press conference to announce that he was suing the archdiocese of Oakland and, and that, that the book was out. Well, we flew home and on a, on a Friday and uh, on uh, Sunday, he keeled over at the fitness center and he died on Monday. And uh, so that was a um, that was the introduction of, of COVID. That that literally was the day that COVID kind of we all sort of woke up and thought, hey, this is real. Um, and it was and then and then he died. And so it's it, life has been. And then I got COVID. So <laughs> it's been a kind and then I lost my mom in there, too. So it's been a most interesting year in the in the Welch household. So when when you when you tell the story of someone like that, especially with such a traumatic story, mm -hmm. um, that why is that? So, why? How is that therapeutic for the people that you're doing that for? You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of people I was just listening to a podcast this morning and he was saying, I tell people to sit down and write out phases of their life mm -hmm. because it helps them to kind of capture what's what happened. Because sometimes we don't I think we're the worst 
um, editors of our own lives. You know what I mean? Right. We don't see right. the things we have, but you, so you're helping this person and then he dies. That's pretty profound. Well, I think in Jimmy's case, you know, he, he became uh, the, the athletic director at Fresno state. And when this all came down, he went public with this after four years and, um, it was the best thing that could have happened to him, and it was the worst thing that could have happened to them because he he got he, it freed him up emotionally, but the response from the outside gobbled him up. Uh, Fresno State within a year had um, uh, forced him to resign, uh, and then he went through a divorce, and so Jimmy sort of felt like through all of that there was a lot of press in the Fresno area. He sort of said. I, I never got to share my story. I, I never got to, I, I've been defined by all these other people who have said, well, you're this or you're that, but I've never got to say who I think I am. And so right. he came to me. And so that, that was the challenge of his story is to, is to just tell his side of the story. I, I don't think he was being vindictive. Um, but, but yeah, he felt like, um, you know, when you looked on Wikipedia and it basically said, uh, he was an athletic director and he quit because he was forced out because people said he had a drinking problem. There's a whole lot more to Jimmy Barco than that. And, 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 and that is simply not the, the truth that I saw in Jimmy Barco. So um, he wanted that. And I think that that was therapeutic. In fact, I talked to his therapist and just, just going back through it as painful as it was, just like in saving my enemy, the, the World War II story, when those guys finally faced what they've been through, that's when they healed. And, and the, the metaphor I used, I, I got to write Malarkey's memoir back in 2008. The memoir we used in that one, because he was from Astoria, so I wanted the metaphors to be kind of coasty, uh, was these birds that float on the uh, in the waves. And, and if the waves are large enough, they're, they can't outrun them, right? They can't outswim them. And what they do is to be safe is they turn and they dive right into the wave. And um, and that's what Malarkey and the German soldier did. And that's what Jimmy Barco did. They they faced it and head on. And that's that's how the healing began. Because now you teach writing classes down at Yahats and stuff like that, mm. too, as well. Right. I have. Uh, I mean, not in the last couple of years, but yeah, so, B-side writers. So why do, why do you think it's so important for us to understand our story. Cause you, I mean, you've written like me, you've done even more though, because you were, you were writing like a different kind of style, but you, you're, you're telling the stories of people. And I think um, it's a profound thing when you get to sit there and people tell you things that you, you think, I don't know that you'd tell your wife that, yeah. <laughs> you know it's, what I mean? You, in my business, uh, you know, with, I don't know, I think I wrote over 10,000 pieces in 40 years of, of newspaper work and then does a couple of dozen books. You do feel sort of like a, a voyeur, like that you've been invited in and you don't really necessarily belong. But the word I keep coming back to is privilege. I think it's a privilege when somebody trusts you with their life and says, um, you know, I want you to tell my story. I mean, there's a there, there's a lot of, uh, it's kind of like, you know, like when you go to a funeral home, you know, that's a very sacred moment. I want you to take care of my mom or, you know, I want you to right. take care of my dad. And and in the same sense, I think that I have that kind of, or I, I, I hope that I have that sensitivity to where they're coming from and, and um, definitely considered a, an honor to be the one to tell somebody's story. So 
what is the first step for somebody? Because I'm, it's funny that I listened to that podcast this morning because now I've got you sitting here and now I, I, I want to kind of go a whole weird direction here. But for people to, what's the first thing they have to look at when you, when you're, when you're sitting down to kind of examine your life and what you're doing? Well, the first thing I tell them is, um, if you want a book that somebody's going to be interested in reading, you need to be vulnerable. The, the deeper you go with yourself, the more the reader is going to like the story. The, the more you try to come off as somebody that you're not, the more the reader is going to fall asleep. And so the first thing I do is try to get people to uh, confront, you know, what they've been through in their life and, 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 and be willing to, to deal with it. And that comes back to that word courage. I think I, I had a client um, who wrote a book um, letters from Dachau. It was about her father being a hero in world war II. He was one of the first physicians into the Dachau concentration camp in April of, uh, of 1945. And yet when I started listening to her story and, and heard what type of a father he was and what type of a husband he was, for example, he, he broke uh, his wife's nose in front of my client at one point. Um, I said, you know, I think you've only told part of the story here. Your father was a hero, but when he came home, um, there was hell to pay for that. And his PTSD forced him to be somebody he probably didn't want to do, but your mom and, and your brother and sister and you paid the price for that. And I encouraged her literally sitting with her therapist to tell her story and the therapist was all in and and ultimately uh Clarice Wilsey my my client she had the courage to tell that side of the story and and now that the book is out she said it's been life changing because i have people coming out of the woodwork who said oh my gosh i thought i was the only kid of a world war 2 dad who went through what you went through um or she has classmates who tell her oh my gosh Clarice i had no idea you were going through that as a kid and so I just think there's power in being open and being vulnerable. I know as a columnist, when I dared to write something that was very personal, and particularly if it didn't show me necessarily in a great light, um, that's what people would respond to. I think we're hungry for those, uh, those soul stories, if you, if you will. And it really is the blocking point. I remember going to a funeral and I won't say who it was, but a well-known person in this community business person. And um, he'd struggled with alcoholism his whole life. And I went to the, the funeral and everybody was doing their, you know, praising and praising and praising. Mm -hmm. And the daughter got up and said to the grandkids, I just want you guys to know, you know, your grandpa was a great man, but he, he was an alcoholic and he put himself, he, he drank himself to death. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting in this funeral going and you can see people really uncomfortable. But it was like I went up afterwards and I said, that is the most honorable thing you could do for your father, because you really you didn't take away who he was. You just you, you, you made it real. And you and your concern for your children was more strong than your desire to cover up what happened. And probably the alcoholism was covering up stuff like that anyway. You know, and I think right. so many people. Well, don't get in touch with that side. Maybe that's where you and I are lucky with the jobs that we've had is you you're so used to doing that with other people that for me, it's really simple to just get on. Like, well, I, I'll never forget you interviewing me after I found out I had cancer. Right. And you came. We met at a coffee shop. Yep. And you said, how are you doing, Rick? And I said, well, no, I'm fine. My, my, well, my mom died last night. And um, 
And and you and I remember you looked at me and you said, Rick, your mom just died. What are you doing here? And it's like, well, it's part of my life. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a big but but the article, I still have it. You get kind of focused on some of that and, and it's just kind of how you play things out, you know? Yeah. It's um it's hard to convince people that 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 sort of di divulging their soul is is a good thing because I think we're in our culture. I think we're taught to be very careful. I mean, never let them see you sweat, right? That's that's right. kind of the the motto. And and it's not it's not who I am. It's who you think I am. And um, like in saving saving my enemy is a case where the son or the, the the two sons of Fritz Engelbert, the German soldier, and the daughter of uh, Don Malarkey, um, Marion McNally, they could have they could have tried to brush all the stuff aside. But like, you know, I mean, her dad had already told me stuff like, uh, well, every every night uh, when I came home after work, I'd have a glass of scotch, and in the bottom of the glass, I could see the face of every man I left in Bastogne. Uh, I already knew that the guy tried at one point was going to fly off Highway 26 at Mount Hood and kill himself. I already knew that that the police had to drag him home and, and put him up on the front porch uh, Friday night after Friday night. So I, but, but here's the interesting thing that, that uh, Marion said, it wasn't until 2001, the band of brothers came out, she's in Paris and the BBC is interviewing her father. And he said, yeah, I basically drank away the war to forget about it. Wow. And Marion had grown up with this and it wasn't until that moment in 2001, she, she put two and two together. Oh, I see. That's why my dad drank so much. So you right. see, this can be going on, and, and but you don't even know the why behind it. A lot of people in Germany probably thought that Fritz Engelbert was just a quiet guy who, who suddenly got uh, erupted during family gatherings if they brought up the war or Hitler. Um, but no, the guy had an absolute wounded soul. And so for 60 years, he felt the shame of having been a pawn of Adolf Hitler. And so it, it came out in a different sort of way than Don. He didn't drink himself uh, into oblivion, but he he just was uh, very much to himself. He threw himself into work and he hid himself at work. And then 60 years later, the two of them wind up in a pub in Germany and everything changes. And, and that's this book. This is Bob's newest book, Saving My Enemy. Um, that is just crazy. So, so Bob, what have you learned about you from doing all of this um, that that we may not know? What what have you learned that's made what's? Oh boy, that's a great question. What have I learned about me? Um, I've learned that, uh, that, that, that being passionate about telling other people's stories is the greatest thing and, and, and the worst thing. And that I, I, I can't say no to people. I, 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 to be honest with you, my life, um, my biggest regret in my life, you know, divulging it to the world, is just simply being too busy. Just because I, I always keep saying yes to people. Hey, will you help my tell, tell my story? Oh, I can't turn that down. I mean, right. when it came down to the, my, my uh, client from India, he's a Sikh. I had I had a doctor in Toronto who wanted me to write his story at the same time. And I thought he's probably a better paycheck. He's 65. He's a doctor. And here's a 29 year old Sikh 
who was on the Golden Gate Bridge and was going to jump, who came to America from India right before 9-11, who had a tetherball uh, ropes wrapped around his neck on the playground and the, and the kids yelling, terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. And when he played high school basketball, every time he touched the ball, had people yelling, 9-11, 9-11. And I immediately said yes to the, to the kid. Because why? Because I just was fascinated with the story. I have no idea what it would be like to grow up in a culture where you're considered the enemy. I grew up in white Corvallis, Oregon as a white kid, and I've never had to experience that. I simply wanted to understand what life was like for somebody like him. And it's been an absolute fascinating experience. But again, when you pile up too many of those stories and you don't have much time for your own stories, I think. And, and, and so my, my lament is I'm just trying to land this, this retirement plane a little bit and, and get to a point where I have one or two clients maybe, and I'm working on my own book instead of having four or five clients and, and also trying to wedge my own books in there as well. So, so, so what is Bob Welch's why? Oh, <laughs> why can't you, why can't you ask all these questions that the, you know, the, my publicist sends to the radio people and they're, they're all the, uh, they're all the uh, easy answer things. I've answered them 400 times, but you have to ask, what is the why? Um, you're going to have to, you're going to have to, you're going to have to go deeper with that question. Cause I could take that a lot of different ways, but, but. So what do you get, what do you get out of. I, okay. What if I? What, I okay, I'll tell you what I get. I, I I love I love perspective. I love understanding, and I and I and I and I've always been drawn to people who are different than I am, um, because I I'm I've been I'm fascinated by people in general. But I'm also the thing about being a reporter, and you know this because you were one and you are one now, is that you get you get to go places nobody else gets to go and you get to go places that where you wouldn't get to go otherwise. And that might be out onto the 50 yard line with Michael Irvin, uh, uh, whose book I was going to write, but that, that one didn't work out. The Dallas Cow Cowboys wide receiver at, at Texas stadium. And, and it might mean, um, you know, talking to a kid about what was it like to walk out on the Golden Gate Bridge on the Saturday morning you thought you were going to throw yourself over the side. And I've always been, I've, what I've learned about myself, I'm, I'm always more fascinated by the obscure, courageous people with integrity than I am with the, the rich and the famous yeah. who a lot of people like to grab onto and think that they're they're great stuff. I've always like Francis Slanger, American Nightingale, the first nurse to die after the landings at Normandy. That's a Bob Welch story. It's a right. it's a woman who deserved the spotlight, but who never pined for the spotlight. And right. yet she had a hospital ship named after her. She instilled hope in thousands of soldiers with a simple letter that she wrote saying, guess what? It's you guys are my priority. I don't care how tough it is for me. Uh, I just want to make it better for you. And I think that that's a dying breed, particularly in our political atmosphere, in our world where so many people are trying to get 
something for me. I think my why is going back to your question to honor people who aren't about self, but who are about others. What does that do? Like, would you know where that comes from for you? Like when you, um, my, my, you know, my, my, when I said my business coach asked me one time, what's your why? And I said, you know, I, I feel like people are voiceless and they should have a voice if they agree with me or not. I don't care. I just think they should have a voice. And she said, why? And I started to cry because I all of a sudden realized that my father never listened to me mm -hmm. and he'd ask me a question and I'd tell him, Oh, what do you think we should do, Rick? And I tell him, and then he'd go do something else. And, and she goes, so your dad's dysfunction kind of created the man you are. And that is a driving force in my life. You know what I mean? And yeah. you, I feel, I understand that feeling you have is when I go into someone's life, I feel like you're letting me in and there's a lot of respect that goes with that, but it's like, you're taking something with you and then exposing it to them, which is, I find fascinating. And then I've had so many people come to me and go, I didn't even know that about myself because they aren't, I'm you and I get to be on the outside listening and right. we can pull things and find things that, that other people can't see in themselves. And I would, I would, that would be, that's why it was fun reading your article about me as you were pulling things out of me. Cause you and I probably are not as self-aware as if some reporter was asking us these questions. <laughs> I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, the few times that I've talked to, I have a, a couple of friends who are counselors and I absolutely find it fascinating to have them ask questions about me and my life because I think I've concentrated so much on trying to figure out other people that I'm not sure that I've really gone all that deep with the why. Um, I do know that I was, uh, my mother was a huge influence on me. She was, she was always just innately curious about other people and particularly people who were different from her. And I think I inherited that. Uh, I think my curiosity came from her. My father was a photographer and he told stories through film and, and things like that. And all, also an artist. Um, but I think that the, I think that the, curiosity is a really significant part of my life. I just, you know, like the Q and a column that I used to write for the register guard, honestly, I, I could write, I could write some tear jerking story, uh, you know, one after another and something really funny, but who, who comes up to me at the, at Matt court and, and wants to talk about, they want to talk about the Q and a column because I think a lot of people just have this innate curiosity about the place they live. And that, that column was sort of this accidental, I don't have anything to write this week. I'll just throw together some Q and A's and throw it out there. But it absolutely was a home run. One of the most popular things in the paper. And I think, so I think it, people are innately curiosity, but I think we live in a culture that, that doesn't promote that. I don't think right. we, we, we encourage people to look deeply into other people, I think, or even into ourselves for that matter. And I think that a lot of the divide we have is because People would rather um, use a stereotype. It's simpler to just slap a label on somebody and saying, okay, you're a Democrat. Well, you're then this. You're a Republican. Well, then you're this. You're black. Well, you're, the, you're this. You're white. You're, and, and that's how, rather than getting to know somebody and finding out what are they really like or reading a book and finding out what a culture is like, I think we, we take the easy way out and, you know, particularly with social media 
we believe we believe things without investigating them and uh, and here we are and doesn't it didn't you find i mean even with stories you did it takes a relationship to get when, when you're hanging out with people getting their story out and i think that's what we miss out on today is it's so easy to throw people in oh rick dancers this and bob welch is that right. rather than sitting down and um having a conversation and getting to know people and I, and I and you know as you get older i think how old are you bob i'm 67. okay i'm 62 this year mm -hmm. and i think you get to this age and i'm starting to have people now discount me because of my age they'll go hey boomer old man, shut up, you know, and I'm going, wait, that's ageism. You can't do that. That's just like racism, <laughs> but, but about age, you know, you can't do that. But it's putting you in a box. Whereas I think if once you sit down with people and really get to know them, that's when the magic happens. Right. And, and we don't take that time, which is why I love your books, because these are things that it, almost by reading it, it teaches me how to have a conversation, how to look beyond the face, the person, the, oh, here's the obvious story. And there's never an obvious story. And I think nowadays too, you knew this as a reporter. They always say, well, there's two sides to a story. No, there's like 14, <laughs> you know, there's not just two sides to a story. There's so much. In, and we, we've lost that part of our humanity. And I think yeah. that's, I love well, that you keep, you keep that going in books. And the, the thing that I've always loved about reporting and writing is that you learn so darn much. And, and in this case, saving my enemy, the, the guys that are teaching us this lesson about, well, it's about courage really and forgiveness and reconciliation. They're World War II guys. They're the least likely guys that, and, and they are guys uh, and they're white guys. And so in some ways they're the, the least likely to be um, into anything sort of touchy feely, right? Uh, but these these guys, um, they forgave each other. They broke down in tears. They respected each other enough to have a conversation. And that's in our culture today. We can't even get to that point a lot of times. And I, I, I tell people, you don't have to you don't have to agree with the person across from you. You don't even have to necessarily like them. But I tell you what, we're doomed if we don't respect each other just enough so we can share the truth with each other and have an actual conversation about something. And that's what Fritz and Don did. They, you know, 80, 79 and 83 years old over a couple of beers, they, they share each other's stories. And, and Don says, you know what, Fritz, you were in Hitler youth at age 10. You didn't have any choice. You don't have to feel guilty about being a pawn for Hitler. You didn't have any choice. And 10 minutes later, when, when, malarkey's crying fritz says the same thing to him through his son who's interpreting this and says you know what you didn't have any choice either we both had to go to war we did what we didn't want to have to do and we've spent 60 years paying the price for it but what came out of it was this amazing friendship where they um basically forgave each other they saw each other two more times the the malarkey family flies over from oregon to germany and meets with the Engelbert family. And then you talk about courage. Dawn's daughter invites Fritz's sons to come to an easy company reunion in Portland. Now these, wow. are, these are the, who goes to the reunion? The sons and daughters and nephews and nieces of the easy company guys, the band of brothers, many of well, all, all who are just almost deceased by this point, but some of whom have died at the hands of the Germans. 
And you're going to just suddenly bring in the, the, the two sons of a German soldier. But she did it and she didn't ask. And guess what? They were warmly welcomed because like Marion said, if you can't forgive somebody after 70 years, then you, then you need to just put on your big boy panties or your big girl panties and get on with your life, folks, because we're going to get nowhere in this world if we don't learn to forgive each other and move forward. Is that the lesson of the book? Is that the lesson that I think it's I think it's one of the many lessons. And I think the other one is is is. And I see a, a real lack of courage in our culture today. And, and what I see in this, in Saving My Enemy, is courage. Like, in, it's 2004. There's a sergeant named uh, Bill Maloney in, in Iraq. And his, his uh, unit has been over there more than a year. So he wants to do something to encourage them. So he hears that maybe he can get some of these band of brothers on 4th of July, 2014, to call his folks and talk to some people and encourage them. Well, while he's making the phone call with one of the band of brothers, Earl McClung, a, a shell goes off. I mean, and a person is killed right next to him. Other people are wounded. When McClung gets back on the phone with him, McClung's in Denver, Colorado, he says to me, Billy, I had no idea that it was that bad over there. He goes, we got to do more than a phone call. What can we do to really help our troops over there? He said, how about you? How about we have an event in Germany where my unit a station and you bring six of the band of brothers over there and and we do something there and mcglung says i'm all in and then here's where the courage part comes maloney goes and how about if we invite some german soldiers <laughs> and he said there was this big giant space of silence on the other end of the phone because it's like oregon state having a big reunion and saying hey why don't we invite a few ducks too because people just don't do that. But he he knew he'd read some books. Uh, we were soldiers once and young, for example, where when enemy soldiers get together, there's therapy in them forgiving each other. And so he had the courage to do that. Now, Fritz Engelberg, he was he was one of those asked to come to this event. He didn't want anything to do with it. Why? These guys had humiliated them in the war. Then they'd gone on to become movie stars. Why would he want to show up at an event, you know, where they were going to be the, the toast of the town and he was going to be probably made fun of? And as soon as he walks into this pub, reluctantly, uh, sure enough, Wild Bill Garnier comes up to him, one of the band of brothers, and says, you know what, Fritzy, it's a good thing I didn't meet you 60 years ago. Otherwise, I would have killed you. <laughs> exactly what this man did not need. He gets up and gets ready to leave and his son says, no, no, wait, 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 Father. And suddenly Don Malarkey stands up with his mug of beer and says, a toast to my new friend, Fritz Engelbert, one of the one of the band of brothers. And in that moment of courage, again, courage on Maloney's part to invite the Germans, courage that Fritz even came, and courage for Don when the tide was turning against this guy and he could have easily piled on and made fun of the German too. He dares to stand up and, and defend the man and welcome him in. And that's what changed everything. I heard a quote this morning and it said, um, you're either a coward or you're courageous. And you have to choose on a daily basis what you're going to do. And that means, you know, risking. And I think sometimes people think taking risks, it's, it's, it's those emotional risks. And can you imagine if Democrats and Republicans um, 
could actually take a risk and start like, like, you know, I, I was saying this the other day, Wayne Morse, Mark Hatfield, those old time Mama people. Call. Yep. Yeah. That, that you, you, you knew that this was kind of a game and there was a negotiation that went on. So here's this position and this position, and then you work until you get to the middle and come up with something that everybody's not tickled about, but, but it'll work. You come up with a solution. And now we just get this, you know, this attitude that nobody's going to work together and do anything. I mean, it's, you know, I did a documentary on Hatfield and, and Wayne Morse supported Hatfield against for, for his Senate run against a, uh, another uh, a Democrat at the time. And he said, because they were both, both against the Vietnam war. Right. And right. people go, Oh, well, that's awesome because yeah, well, we're all against the war. No, 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 no. At this time, 74% of Oregonians supported the war. Right. And Mark Hatfield said, I don't think we would have got a pass in this day and age. Back then, it was a, you got a pass because they knew who you were and what you stood for, and they give right. you a little bit of a break. Right. I think that I think that going back to decades ago, there was a civility that we had that no longer exists. I mean, Malarkey himself, he hung out a place in Salem called the Cue Ball, and his his closest friends were a Japanese American, a guy who'd been interned during the war, a, a Chinese American a Mennonite who, who was a pacifist and Don Malarkey who was farther right than Maine. <laughs> and, and you know what? They loved each other and they got along and they, and they encouraged each other and hung out. And politically they didn't see eye to all eye in the least. Their, their experiences totally different. And yet they found a way to be friends. And that's what we cannot seem to do today. We don't, we don't want to even be in the same room with somebody like, that's different than we are. So Bob, last thing I'll ask you, um, if, if you were going to write, if someone out there is thinking, I'm going to write my story, not literally like figuratively, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting down and writing their story, although that's a great idea for people to sit down and write out the things that you're thinking. But if you're going to, what would you add to what, what, what don't we add enough, uh, to our lives? Um, is it risk? Is it courage? What would what would you say? You know what I mean? I, I feel like our whole lives are a story. And every day I get to wake up and say, what am I going to do? What's my story going to look like today? What chance am I going to take? What what are you as an author? What would you from all these people you've interviewed? What would you say is something that you could just drop with people that they could take away from this and maybe inspire them to have a have a more interesting life? Well, I think. I think simply being curious, I guess, about about yourself and about other people. Um, the mo most people who write, uh, you know, I've, I've taught over, I don't know, a thousand writers, I suppose, over the years. And when I when I read most first drafts of people's life stories, they're sort of um, on this date, this happened. On this date, this happened. And I and I always tell them, don't just say that, but then tell me how do you feel about it. Right. What did it mean to you? How did it change you? If you start answering those questions, then you're going to find out at the end of the book, we're not going to have a Wikipedia story on your life. We're going to understand who you were at some sort of a soul level. And but it's not until you get down there and really ask those questions. And I I would really honor Clarice Wilsey. You know, this is a woman who had a really difficult childhood. And yet she had the courage to face her demons to, to she she so desperately she loves her father and yet she but she can't dispute the idea that that life was hell growing up in his house 
And so in writing the book, um, Letters from Dachau, she she had the courage to sort of face what she had been through. And I think that that I would I tell writers, you know, just have the courage to be real about who you are and what you've experienced and, and, and answer the question, dare to ask the question, why am I the way that I am? Uh, that when it came to writing a feature story, um, there's a guy named John Franklin, a Pulitzer Prize winner who used to be a prophet U of O, and he came over and met with the Register Guard feature writers in the early 90s, and he absolutely revolutionized how I thought about a story because he asked that question, you know, why are you the way that you are? Who, you know, we're all different, but who inspired you? And, and, um, so getting down to those root levels, that's that's what I would encourage people to do is, is you know, you, anybody can write the, you know, this happened on this date, but getting down to the soul level is is what interests other people. Right. Anybody can report facts. Um, it takes it takes great courage yeah. to report a life and to, to go and really do something. And the interesting thing is, though, I, I can remember having conversations with people who wrote about politics, for example, or city council. I remember talking to a woman once, and I mean, I, I just told her, I said, I, I, I don't even know how you can do what you do. I, I, I can't understand all that stuff. It's just like a foreign language to me. And, and I really admire what you do. And she said to me, she said, just don't give me a 25-inch feature on, 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 on a, a personality profile because I don't even know where to begin. So, <laughs> you know, so it, it's kind of like this is, this is I've, I've just naturally gravitated to people uh, and then other people naturally gravitate to politics or whatever. Um, but I, I wouldn't have traded this life. I didn't, you know, you come down, you know, when you're 67, you do start, you know, kind of putting things in perspective. And, and um, gosh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have traded this for anything. The, the people that I've met, not only through the, uh, the registered guard, but doing the workshops, speaking, I, 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 like you, I speak a lot of places, I've met people and you just learn so much when you get out there. I mean, like, remember the MLK thing? They wanted to rename MLK. Yeah. And part of the white community just like fall on our sword. We're not, no way. It's centennial. That's that's the hundred year anniversary of the state. You know what? Our African-American community was simply looking for some affirmation, just a little slice of the pizza. But no, 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 we couldn't let them have that. We had to fight it and fight it. So when it finally passed, they couldn't feel good about it. And it, right. it angered me so much. I went and took a 10 week class in multiculturalism at Lane Community College because I said, this is what we do. We fight and we don't learn anything. And I'm going to learn something. And I reported, I don't know, I wrote six columns on what it was like. In the same way, um, Sally and I took the, the Citizens Police Academy. Three months of every every Wednesday night going and listening to police officers talk about what their job's like. Fascinating. I, every city council person should do that. It should be required right. because you learn so much that you don't know. But but when we just sit in our bunkers and throw grenades, we're not going to learn about anybody who's different than we are. And we're never going to change our minds. And if nobody changes their minds, then we're going to be in this little eddy for the rest of our our time and it's just sad yeah so bob where do people find your book uh saving my enemy is in local bookstores and um into uh yeah barnesandnoble.com amazon.com and uh 
wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> hey, Bob, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Hey, and, uh, can I just a- say something? Thank you. Yeah. You're, you are a, an extremely challenging interviewer and, and in the best of senses. I, um, yeah, like I said, I've, the last two weeks, the radio people pretty much just ask these 10 questions and I can kind of like be, be working on my taxes at the same time. But, but you challenged me. I appreciate that. No, I, um, I love what I get to do. And, um, I think I learned some stuff from you as well. And I, uh, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's when you can find, I, I, I walk away from stuff like this, Bob, and I know more about what I'm doing. And, um, I think that's what I hope for everybody that watches. It's why I love doing this uh, venue because people can say what they want about social media, but it gives a lot of people um, who do deserve to have a voice, a voice. And I think they learn, I get people, I I can't tell, there's a, I think people just come on and they go, oh yeah, I can, I think, give me permission to to strive for something, you know what I mean? Or to be courageous and I think, Um, stories like what, you know, when I read this kind of stuff and I, when I used to read your column, you'd go, oh, it's okay to feel, you know, it's okay to ask that question. And I always get people, I I remember my photographers used to say, oh my God, you ask people questions that they should never answer and (laughs) and they tell you. And it's like, and it wasn't like I was going around expressing it, but it was like, because you get in and you know how that is, you get in there and all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, this is, I, this isn't going to go in the story, but this is so interesting, you know, mm-hmm. and then your life is, is better. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll be watching you. We'll be watching for more books and, um, and we'll be watching your kid too. Uh, All right. Just, Thanks Rick. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. You bet you, Bob. Thank you okay. for coming in. Okay. We'll see. Uh, and you guys, we want to thank Chris Dental, Michael Bratlin, Dr. Michael Bratlin over at Chris Dental. So if you are in the market for a new dentist, um, he's my dentist. He's a great guy. He takes care of you. Um, he's just got a big warm heart and he really cares about the community. We're putting up some billboards uh, that you're going to be seeing coming up, um, uh, supporting business, um, supporting uh, Blue Lives uh, so, and supporting you. And so he's kind of a gutsy dude and uh, teaching me some great things as a client. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to be uh, kind of standing out there uh, because you guys, again, what Bob and I'm kind of talking about, I, he was saying courage uh, versus cowardice. And I, um, I would also throw in his other word that he said that we should pro- really remember, God, walk out the door in the morning and just look at your, look in the mirror before you walk out and say, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's not going to kill me. And just maybe, I'll hear something better about my life or about somebody else's life if I'm vulnerable. When people ask me a question, how are you today? Don't just say fine, I'm good, here's why. How are you? And then ask them questions like you're interested in their life. I'll tell you what, people always say to me, how come you have, you have the, you run into the weirdest things? And it's like, because I'm open to it. I am looking constantly around me at every person I'm running into and going, who are they and what are they gonna bring to the world? And if you do that, I'll tell you what, you will have a super interesting story. I really believe God puts us on this planet to write our own story. Yes, he's an editor and yes, he gives us some control and yes, he has some play, but he's throwing things in your direction so you can see how you respond to that to make you grow. And you will either grow or you will shrink back. And I do not, I wanna be that 90 year old man who's still asking questions and saying, I wanna know who I am. (laughs) <laughs> at the age of 90. So share this on your page. You never know who's going to come on there and uh, see it tomorrow. 
what is tomorrow? Tomorrow's Friday. We're going to tell you about a bartering program, a really cool bartering program you can get involved with around here. And then next week on Monday, I'll tell you about a story. This is a young man named George Beverly. And I met him when he was five and he was on the autism spectrum and he could barely speak. Wait till you meet him on Monday. Um, it goes to show you when you have a family that loves you and you have people that get involved in your life and you have programs at work, um, you can do miracles and you will be blown away. All right. Have a good night. I'll see you tomorrow night, five o'clock right here.